So this morning, I'm going to look at three different passages rather than just one, one longer one. And they're all three passages that are, are funeral texts, um, ones that were often done in the, the midst of funerals. And we're continuing, this is actually kind of the finale of our, our Born of the Virgin Mary series. And it's really talking about the one implication of the coming of Christ, that of the promise of eternal life. And so that's the focus of today. And I got to thinking about funerals. And since I'm speaking on some funeral passages, and I went back and I went through my notes, and I counted that I have done 112 funerals since becoming a pastor. Yeah, I... I, Look, there's one year I think the most I did was like 14 or 15 funerals in, in, in one year. I, the first funeral I did, I botched it. I, I lost my notes. I went up there and couldn't, couldn't find some of the notes. I didn't get the idea that I needed to, to be able to talk about the person. You know, I just kind of I, I didn't know what to do. And, yeah, I look back on that with some embarrassment. Um, Probably one of the hardest ones I did, I remember distinctly, it was Thanksgiving because I came home from a Thanksgiving service at the church, and my wife met me in the driveway and says, you need to go to the hospital. One of the teenagers of the church had died in a car accident, and I really didn't know the family well except for the grandmother, and so then I remember going and, and you know, stepping into a situation, and that funeral was quite full. And then I remember doing, probably 10 years later, the funeral for that grandmother. And that was also one of the, the largest funerals. And I remember that one because it was a hot summer day. And the AC of the church wasn't keeping up. And in the afternoon, and we ended up like, I got all the staff and we were like delivering ice water to people as they were gathering for the funeral. So... These things stick out in your mind as you think about, you know, what do you say when there's a death involved, when death happens? And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to be able to explore, you know, in the midst of a funeral, you always kind of keep things fairly shut tight. And, and really the goal that, you know, I've learned is, is you do want to communicate God's word of hope, but also at every funeral, you want to talk about the person. It's good to acknowledge their, their individual life and, and celebrate their life and give, giving thanks to, the, to God for, for their life. So you want to make sure you talk about the person. But, but I also always want to talk about God's word of hope. Why, why can we still have hope? And, and what I want, I want to be clear is Christians, it's, for Christians it's not just wishful thinking about, you know, well, that we'll go up to the great golf course in the sky. Some vague idea that there'll be something better in the next life, but we really don't know. We have a sure and steadfast hope, not a vague wishful thinking. I, I don't know, I recently watched Gladiator. The same is true of that and Braveheart. I don't know if you know those. Those are non-Christian movies. But at both times at the end of them, spoiler alert, the, the hero in each of those dies. And, and in the movie, they flash to them walking through fields of wheat and gold with their spouse who had already been killed before them. This vague hope that somehow they'll be reunited 
with loved ones in the end. But there's no reason given for believing that. We have a reason to believe that there is something sure and certain. It's not just wishful thinking. That's why Jesus was raised from the dead, so that we can have a sure and certain hope. One based on the word of God, the one who gave his life, one that's rooted in his promises. And so I want to look at three truths that we Christians can hold on to as we face death. So in each of these, I'm going to read the passage that goes with it. First from Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. So the first truth that we can hold on to is the Father knows us. He knows how we are made. He knows our limitations. He knows that for us, our life on earth is temporary. We were made from the dust, and to dust we will return. Death is part of being a mortal human being. Note how this passage, it compares us to a flower, you know, a a wild flower, which in its moment is beautiful and glorious. If you've ever, you know, come across a field of of wildflowers and it's just glorious in its display. And and our lives can be like that. It's like that glorious moment of, of flowering. But we always know it does not last. It is temporary. The wind blows over it. And it's gone. And that's part of God's plan for us. Um, It's not just a punishment for our sin. So here's a little theological aside. It's a little bit of debate. And it it comes down to this. Did Adam and Eve, were they inherently going to live forever um, and then just lost that attribute when they sinned? Or were they always mortal but because they had access in the Garden of Eden to the tree of life, is that what enabled them to, to not have to face death? I would argue it's the latter. I would argue they were not inherently given a body that would last forever, that they, they, they needed, because it was there, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, in order to have life going on. That God intended us to be mortal. Psalm 39. I think this is interesting. It's, it's talking about our experience of mortality. It says, O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Note that the adjectives in that fleeting. Our life is fleeting. It's insubstantial. It is as nothing. It is a mere breath. That is our experience. But the good news is, is God knows it. God knows how we are formed. And yet he has compassion on us like a father does for his children. 
And, and here's the other thing that Psalm 103 conveys. God is not sitting up in heaven stewing in anger over how sinful we are. Are we sinful? Yes. Humanity proves that over and over again every day. Open the news or look in your life and, and we will see, yes, we do wrong to one another. We break God's laws. But God is not dwelling on his anger. Earlier in Psalm 103, it says this. It says, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. It also says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He knows our frailties. He knows our failures. He knows that in this world, death happens and the world keeps moving. But God cares for his people, and he was not going to let sin keep us from, from being with him. That's why he sent his son. So why does, if God is so compassionate, why does he have life seem so short and insubstantial, so fleeting? Here's here's the, the thing I've determined. He wants us to seek his eternal life. If if our life on earth, in a sense, would not end, why would we seek his eternal life? Right? We would just be content. to to live on and on. But in Psalm 16, it says, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It says that he set eternity in the hearts of man, of men, mankind. He put a desire within us so that a temporary life is not satisfying. Even as we live this life, and even, in, even when the flower is, is glorious, there's still that niggling little voice. If you're at all attentive, it says, this will not last. And it can actually back poison even the best moments, knowing that they will not last because we are frail, feeble, temporary beings. He does that. The shortness of this life is so that we will seek eternal life. The second truth. So the first one was the Father knows us. The second is Jesus became one of us. Passages from Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. At Christmas, we celebrate that God did not keep his distance from us, right? Even though the world was dark, he came into this world. He became one of us. The word of God became flesh, meaning Jesus shared in our humanity. The son of God became mortal. Even as the day he was born, he became mortal, subject to death. I I counted up in my contract with the church, I'm allotted so many Tolkien references, and I've not fulfilled them all. So maybe you know uh, Elrond is the, 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 the elf lord over Rivendell. His daughter's name is Arwen, Arwen Evenstar. And she, as an elf, could be immortal. 
but she falls in love with Aragorn, destined to be the king. And it's one of the side stories in the Lord of the Rings movies, um, which I highly recommend. Um, and basically, she makes the choice to give up her immortality to marry and be with Aragorn. They live a long life together, but nevertheless, she gives up immortality to be with him, to be a human. Tolkien was a Christian. He was putting little Christian themes in the whole Lord of the Rings series. And that's one of them. The idea of the giving up of, of immortality. And that's what Jesus did. He set aside his, his prerogatives as God, becoming one of us, so that he himself would experience death. But note why it says he does it in our passage. It says to break the power of death and the enemy who holds that power over us. It's so that he could save us from slavery to the fear of death. Not just the slavery of death, he, he does that, but even the fear of death. Because when we grasp that we have eternal life in him, that fear can be broken. We no longer go through life fearing the end. We can be set free to follow Christ and, and faith in him. And just as Jesus faith death, faced death, he was raised to life. And so now he is able to impart eternal life to those who turn in faith to him. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything changes um, how we face death. It shows that the power of death was broken. When it comes to life and death, Christians hold on to the truth that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead by the Father. So we face death knowing God's power transcends the grave. And the promise of the gospel is that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so shall all who belong to him. That good news is there for us this morning, for any of us. If you've never taken the opportunity to trust your life to Jesus Christ, you could do that right now in your pew and simply say in your heart, Lord Jesus, death has a hold on me and I'm afraid of it. So I turn to you. I put my faith in you. I receive what Jesus did for my sins. And, and I accept Jesus into my life as my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow him with my life. If you're willing to take that step, you enter into eternal life. Your candle never goes out before him. That leads us to the third truth that I want to hit this morning. Is that God will dwell among us. So the Father knows us. He knows us in our feebleness and mortality. The Son became one of us. And God will one day dwell among us in our midst. So let me read from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
There are three things in this passage I want to highlight. There's so much, but three I'm going to highlight. One is, first of all, the restoration of creation. This is, this is the beginning of that. It's the, the start of the eternal age begins with the rest, restoration of creation. It talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is recalling, um, you might know that the verse that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that says when we, we are in Christ, when we become a Christian, it says, um, therefore, in Christ, um, we are a new creation. The old has gone the new has come. So it's, it, God takes us, individuals, when we're in Christ, it says the old is gone, the new has come. Now it's saying the same thing about all of creation, all of heavens. The old is gone, the new has come. And it's speaking about how in the eternal age, it will be a physical existence. Not just a spiritual float on the clouds, kind of ghost-like things. God will recreate a physical world that we can live in. Um, we will have resurrected bodies. Just as Christ is raised from the dead, so will we. That means God has to remake the physical laws of the universe so that our biology, so that we can have eternal life and things. It says it means he will get rid of the law of corruption and decay. For those in science, I know there's that second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, where, where decay and corruption is inevitable. God will refashion the laws of the universe so that that, that law of corruption no longer is true. So Romans 8 uh, describes how God will, will refashion, restore creation. Let me read. It's kind of a longer quote. I think I only got part of it on the screen. So it says, For creation waits with eager longing... For the revealing of the sons of God. So this, it, this is happening. It will happen at the same time as, as, as the sons of God. That's resurrected us. Like when we're raised from the dead, the, the creation also will experience this restoration. So then verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Um, so it's talking about how... Sub Creation is now in a state of corruption and futility. In verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul in Romans 8 is talking about the same thing that's pictured in Revelation 21. The restoration of the sons of God, the restoration of creation together... There's a, a side verse that says, no longer will there be any sea. I, I don't think that necessarily means there won't be like an ocean, because you know, we all love to, to go, we spend money to go visit the ocean. In, in the Bible, the sea is, is the, the representation of chaos. If you go back to the beginning of creation, it says um, the, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The sea is always representing of chaos. What it's saying is God will put an end to all that chaos. He will bring everything under his good rule in this restored creation. That is how the eternal age begins. The second thing that I want to highlight out of this is, is that God will dwell with his people. And it, it says it multiple times um, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be with them. Like over and over again, it's making sure one thing is clear. 
God is not going to keep his distance. There will be a closeness that we, we don't fully experience here on earth now in our, our sin-broken world. Um, we will see God and he will be there and there won't be that distance we feel now. But there's another aspect of it. Heaven is not a reward, individual reward for living a good life. Heaven is God establishing a community of people who will dwell with him. So, so when it talks about this, it describes it as a city, a really, really big city, 1,200 miles wide and long and high. Like that's half of the U.S., continental U.S. What it's saying, though, is heaven is not like designed for each individual. Everyone gets their own little heaven. You know, you get, you get your, your uh, favorite yogurt place. You get, you get a golf course. That's not what heaven is about. It's not like your own personal good place. It, it is in a community of people, a city, which means to enter it, he has to do a work within us because we can't bring our junk into it. Otherwise, it would undo the heaven part of it, right? If, if we all came in and we're still just as selfish, greedy, lustful, rebellious as we are in this life, it won't work. He's got to finish the work of purging us of our sin. So, so in this, we will experience a closeness with God that's not tainted by the sinful nature of our heart. It says in another place, it says, when we see him, we will become like him because we will see him as he is. We will see Jesus and it'll finish the work of, of making us like him. That is God's intent for his people. The third aspect out of this that comes across very clearly is the end of death and suffering. God has a plan for, for people um, to, to end death once and for all, to end suffering. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. The former things has passed away. We don't know why God always allows the, the suffering that we have in this world and, and the pain and trouble. But I know I take hope that when I read in the scriptures, God's not going to leave us in this. He's got a plan to, to take us out of us. In this new world, we'll have bodies that are made new, not subject any longer to corruption and death. Um, that, that's a plan worth waiting for. We don't know exactly what it will be like. Revelation is giving us pictures, and we have other pictures from scripture but we know we will be with him and, and it will be as we were made to be all along. I think even there when we, we, when we see God's plan fulfilled, we'll look back on this life and maybe even under, have some understanding of why the, the, the struggles of this life prepared us for that life to come. Maybe we'll see new purpose and even the hardships that we can't explain in this, this time, we'll see how God even used those things for, for his glory and for our good. We talk uh, in shorthand. We say we die and go to heaven. And we use various images. So I love that song, I Can Only Imagine. And it is drawing images, various images from all over Scripture about about what heaven is like. And I want to clarify something. So this picture from Revelation 21, 
where it talks about the eternal age, that is a hope that is yet to come for believers. That has not yet happened. That is the final destination. And so when someone dies, they don't, they don't jump right to Revelation 21. Right? That is, we're all still waiting for that. Um, but what do we jump to? What, what does it mean? Does that mean we just like sit in the ground and wait? No, because it talks about an immediate experience upon death. My view is we don't jump to Revelation 21 and 22 when we die, but we do jump to Revelation 4, 5, and 6. And that talks about the worship that is taking place around the throne of heaven. When we, when we enter that door, it says the door to heaven is open at the beginning of Revelation 4. We enter that door. It talks about the, the souls of Christians being under the altar. In other words, we're safe in Christ. And, and it says to those souls, you know, they ask, how, how much longer? Because they're looking forward to Revelation 21 and 22. How much longer? And in verse 6, it says, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Revelation especially speaks of believers entering the rest of Christ when they lay down this life. We lay down the burdens. We lay down the, the worries. All the anxiety we have is gone. And we will just be at peace in the heavenly throne room of Christ. Our bodies may still be in the ground, turning to dust, returning to dust. But our souls, our spirits, the essence of who we are will be with our Lord in peace, in spiritual paradise, just as Jesus said to the, the one thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the picture. And even there, we yet await the day of the final resurrection in Revelation 21 and 22. I want to close with, as we think about the hope that we have for eternal life, I want us to sing a couple of these worship songs that, that, that are based out of this Revelation 4, 5, and 6 passage. One's a classic. Holy, holy, holy. Describes the, the worship taking place around the throne. Our newer song, Revelation song, describes the same. And my contention is, friends, this is what we, we jump to. If, if next year the candle, your candle is being lit here on the thing, if in this year we, we leave behind this life, that's where we go, where we see and behold him who dwells upon the throne. Father in heaven, I thank you for this promise that we have this word of hope. May we have hope to face the challenges and hardships of this life. May we face them without fear knowing that you have a hold of us, not based on our good deeds or how, how much we get it or even how strong we believe, but Lord, it's simply because we've cast ourselves upon your son, Jesus Christ. And so we know we have a place with you. Enable anyone here who's never, never cast themselves upon you, surrendered to you, enable them, even as these songs are sung, to, to, to take that step of faith so that they too can have this word of hope dwelling in them. Pray it in Christ's name.